Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is Licked CEO Paul Sampson. First of all, artists on Spotify are actually doing a little worse than they had the year before. According to Spotify's Loud and Clear, there were 40 artists that made more than $10 million last year. 130 made $5 million. 470 made $2 million. 10,060 earned more than $1 million. 17,800 made $50,000 and 10,100 earned 100K. Spotify said 57,000 artists earned more than $10,000 last year and 921,000 made 5,000. 232,000 made 1,000. What's more, 94,000 artists had an audience of more than 10,000 monthly listeners, which is pretty hard to do. So this looks really impressive, but when you actually delve into it, you find out that these numbers are equal to the previous year or actually a little less. So Spotify said that 57,000 artists made $10,000 or more, but it turns out that only 14,700 were do-it-yourself artists, and that's about 25%. This is actually down by 4% from the year before, and what it means is that most of the artists that are making that money are already signed to a label. There are 9 million artists on Spotify, and that's growing by about a million a year. But Spotify thinks that only about 200,000 of them are considered professional. There are 3,000 heritage artists on Spotify, and that means their songs are more than five years old. But when you look at all of this, you take it all into account, it indicates that only about a half percent of all artists on Spotify actually make $10,000 a year or more. That's a lot of competition, and you really need a lot of listens to make any money at all there. Now, the saving grace is that there are 27 other platforms that you could make money on as well. So if you're making it on one, chances are you're making it on the others. If you add it all up, maybe it's not all that bad. But on the other hand, you really have to have a lot of ears on your streams to make some money. If you have any comments or questions, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Recording Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on the latest cutting-edge recording technology, multiple ways to mic over 70 different instruments, a new chapter on recording immersive audio, new hitmaker engineer interviews, and much more. Get your copy at a special price at rebrand.ly forward slash recording handbook. That's rebrand.ly forward slash recording handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. And remember, you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Well, guitar collectibles are always interesting in the fact that prices for vintage guitars and prices for guitars owned by music celebrities are going higher and higher. For instance, Jimi Hendrix's original Epiphone Wilshire, which is a relatively inexpensive guitar, and this is the one he played with the band King Casuals while he was in the army, this is going for $1.25 million. Supposedly, he originally bought it for only $65. Now, just to put it in perspective, Epiphone re-released that model in 2020 for only about $449. And again, put it in perspective, his white Strat from Woodstock sold for $2 million. 
He's not the only one with gear that really brings in a lot of dough. A Kurt Cobain stage smash Strat went for $597,000, and one of his Fender Mustangs went for $486,000. But the big one was his Martin D-18 that he played on Nirvana's MTV Unplugged show, recently went for an all-time high of $6 million. Accessories go for a lot of dough as well. His Boss DS-1 Distortion recently went for $75,000. In fact, one of his Dunlop Tortex guitar picks recently sold for $14,000. It was signed and authenticated, though, so maybe it was a deal. And again, just for some perspective, you can buy a bag of 12 for about $8. I guess some people just have too much money. My guest on this episode is Paul Sampson, who's the founder and CEO of music licensing service for creators, Licked. Paul started in the entertainment business working for a small television production company where he encountered difficulties licensing music multiple times, and that made him want to understand the nuances and problems of music licensing that needed solving. That led him to a job with sock music company Extreme Music, where he rose through the ranks to become head of U.S. operations. After a stint focusing on commercial music and unsigned independent acts, Paul launched Licked to help YouTube and Instagram creators legally license music for their videos. Licked currently works with over 10,000 labels and publishers to help pre-clear their music for social platforms, games, and even various metaverses. It's the only licensing platform in the world where you get over 1 million chart tracks for your videos without any fear of copyright claims. During the interview, we talked about the problem that creators can have with YouTube's content ID and music licenses, the nuances of music in the metaverse, how AI will affect production music, and much more. I spoke with Paul via Zoom from his office in London. By the way, because of some computer problems, I did this interview from my laptop rather than my normal studio. So my voice is going to sound different than it usually does. Paul, let's get started going back to the beginning, I guess. Tell me how you get into the business, the music business. Oh, wow. Um, so I started I, when I left university. 20, 24 years ago now. Wow. Um, I, I worked in television uh, for four years. Uh, I, I thought I wanted to be in television. And I worked at one independent production music, one, one independent production company for that, for five years straight. Uh, and in that time, you know, small independent production companies give you lots of opportunities. And I rose through the ranks quite quickly. And within, within you know, 18 months, I found myself in edit suites producing segments for tv shows uh and um I, I remember going into an edit bobby with all this music from my personal collection up in my arms uh, and sitting down with the editor and he said to me what's that and i said where's the music i want to put in the show and he said we have a music budget and i said and i said to him no 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 i, I own this and he said to me you own the plastic you don't own the music uh, and that was my first introduction to just how difficult it is licensing music you know, uh, efficiently, in a timely fashion, and affordably. And he basically pointed me to um, a row of shelves. So most edit, edit rooms have the shelves of stock music. And said, you can use anything you want from these CDs, but you can't use anything in your hands. Uh, and, and, and I ended up getting to know all of the stock music companies very, very well because they, I was a client. Um, and then after five years, 
I had let it be known that I wanted to move to New York. And one of them said, well, you know our catalog really well. And you know our competitors' catalog really well and how we stack up. And we have an opening in New York. If you're not doing what you want to be doing in London, would you consider not doing it in New York? And uh, they were right. You know, I, I knew how I wanted to be treated as a, as a customer. And so I treated all my customers when I joined them like I wanted to be treated. And I was good at it. And I moved to New York in 2005, so 18 years ago. And I did my first day in music licensing. And, uh, and it's taken off from there, really. Well, I have a similar story. Tell uh, me. I live in Burbank, so I'm right okay. over the hill to Hollywood, okay? I, I, moved, I moved to L.A. after New York with that same company, so I know it all very well. Yeah, yeah. I've been here for a long time, so I have lots of friends in television. And even though I'm a music person, I eventually did some television as well. And one of the shows that we did was called Desert Island Music. And the idea was that we're going to get a celebrity musician who would tell us their most influential songs and we'd play it and whatever. Yeah. So we did a pilot and there were 30 songs that had to be cleared. The cost was just so astronomical that it was like, oh, I didn't realize. And the show went out the window because we realized that there's no way that we can afford this. Yeah. So same thing. Well, it's interesting, you know, because it's, it's amazing how you learn about things and then find out what you're passionate about. I, I, I got, I, I, within two and a half years of moving to New York, I was made head of US for this company, right? They had been acquired in that time by Sony Publishing. And they moved me out to LA. And we're talking now middle of 07. And so, as you well know, Bobby, that the music industry was, was on it, had been on its ass for about eight years at that point, right? And yeah. records have fallen through the floor because of, digitalization and Napster and then iTunes and so on. And we were able, with stock music is essentially an affordable alternative to, to chart music, to mainstream music, right, for productions like yours and mine. And we were able to speak to some and, and win some really huge names by to, to come and work with us by saying to them, you know, I'll give you an example. We went to Snoop. We said, you know, Snoop, you know that Kellogg's, the Cornflakes company, makes Sainsbury's own brand cornflakes, right? Like Sainsbury's not in the cornflake manufacturing game. Well, you should be creating the West Coast hip hop that people license from us when they can't afford your music, right? And, you know, he, he couldn't write it because his publisher would own it. He couldn't vocal on it because his label would own it. But he could curate it and he could sort of exec produce the curation of the most commercial sounding stock music that there would ever be in his genre. And we did the same with Hans Zimmer and Quincy Jones and Massive Attack and Rodney Jerkins. And, and I saw what having a real commercial sounding stock music catalog available easily and affordably to clear what it did for the market share I could win. So I can draw a dotted line between that day in the edit suite, that year in 07 when we did all those deals, and what I'm doing today, right, which is there's been a desire since, since that day in the edit suite to make music of, uh, available to license and to be, to be democratised across as many productions as it possibly can because the music industry grew up monetising scarcity. But what's happened 
in the world is that digitalization has meant that everything's been democratized. And if we continue trying to monetize scarcity, then all we're doing is blocking democratization opportunities. And, and that's the MO behind everything I'm doing at the moment. Well, let's talk about Lick for a moment. How did that come about? Well, I'd been doing what I was talking about for 12 years. So 20, 2015, I started thinking about this. So all of my clients had been TV networks, ad agencies, film studios, and trailer houses, right, for 12 years. And if you think about all of them, they're just big production companies. I realized that, hang on, all of the resources of production companies have been democratized, right? You don't need an avid edit suite anymore. You don't even need an editor. You don't need a, a 10 grand camera to shoot on. You can do it on your phone or with a home camera, and you can do all the rest on your laptop. And the only thing that I hadn't democratized in line was the service I offered. The service I offered was the exclusive domain and resource of multinational conglomerates or big business. And that seemed nonsensical to me. And I remember reading an article that gave me the numbers on the growth of user-generated content. And there was no doubt in my mind, it, it, this was the fastest growing production sector in the world. And it would soon outstrip in terms of volume, the content that was being delivered by business. And that actually, if you could create something akin to say Spotify, but for creators, for people to easily license the music they love, then you'd have something really valuable. And that was when I, I left my job uh, and I spent a summer raising money and scoping it and working out how the tech would need to work. And, uh, and I, got, I got some seed money and I, and I started licked. But, you know, you, I looked at YouTube because that's you know was the preeminent user generated content platform and everyone on youtube that earns money from youtube right just the term youtubers yeah. that's who we're referring to i learned that they were prohibited from working with commercial music if they wanted to maintain their income so are you familiar with content id would your listeners be familiar oh, yeah. yeah 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 Right. So Content ID recognizes music in a YouTube video. And when it does that, it presumes you've infringed copyright. Why? Because there's nowhere to get the license. We know you infringed because it's impossible to license this music. Right? Yeah, yeah. I thought, if I'm going to do this, I've got to find a way to force Content ID into an innocent till proven guilty decision-making process from the existing guilty till proven innocent. In fact, there wasn't even a, 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 a route for you to prove innocence, right? But I've got to solve that problem first. And a friend of mine was a developer, and we went and took all the YouTube certifications. We learned the API. We learned the CMS. We learned Content ID. And we sat there. Well, actually, there is a route that you can interject in the process, but no one's realized it. And if we build it, and it does rely on anyone that worked with us, anyone that was going to agree to deliver us music, also integrating that piece of software into their YouTube CMS, not just us doing it on ours. But yeah. if they did that, the two CMSs could talk and we could inform Content ID of two things. A, this song is now legally licensable, pre-cleared, master and publishing. And B, I can tell you, if it has been legally licensed, 
not just if it's available for license. And if I can do those two things, I can help you, YouTube, or you, Content ID, determine which videos you should be claiming, you should be persecuting, and which ones you should leave alone. Either way, the rights holders getting paid because they can only license from us if they pay the appropriate fee. And when I realized that was possible, I took, you know, I, I took the summer off and I built the deck and I did all the build the research and I went and raised some money. And when when we built the demo and it worked, you know, it was a real sort of aha moment for us. But then I naively went to the music industry thinking, well, when I tell them about all of the opportunity I'm now enabling for them, they're going to hold me on their shoulders and parade me around the streets like the hero I am. <laughs> and, and you're laughing already, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So naive. Because all they ever do is resist innovation, right? When it comes to adopting innovation, yeah. they're, they're ever so slightly ahead of the Amish. And, and what, they, what they did was <laughs> they, they, they told me no, they held me back, and they told me, told me a million reasons why it wasn't possible. But today, there are 10,000 labels and publishers signed to Licked, and there's over 7 million songs delivered to the platform, a million and a half of which are available for license. The rest are being held up with publishing clearances, but that's coming. And included in that are the names of the three majors and all the big indies um, and every major player that you would consider necessary to that sort of solution. Um, and, and and the company's evolved a lot since then, but that was product one, right? When I wrote Bobby, and I know I'm rambling, I'll stop in a second. I wrote then in 2017 when I had the money to to hire and start the business. I wrote an, a, a very small mission statement, which was democratize music for the world's creators, and the UGC product fit that perfectly. S since then. And well, this year, we launched a second product, and this week, we launched a third product, all of which fit into that mission, none of which are necessarily in the UGC space. And uh, we can come on to them. But yeah, so that's that's sort of the origin story. Yeah, it's been, a, it's been well, a ride. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, because for a while, I haven't heard this for a couple of years now, but there was a time where content ID was even identifying artists with their own music saying, you know, you <laughs> violated the copyright, your own copyright, and they're doing takedowns on, <laughs> on yeah. artists' own material. Yes. But I think that's been sorted because I haven't heard too much about that lately. Is, is that true? Well, I think what's happening is there's a better collaboration between the artist and the label because it's the, it's the label's CMS. The, the artist doesn't own their music, right? So yeah. the label's put a policy on which just says claim everything. Whereas now I think they, they, there's more ability for them to identify channels which they are working with and to allow usage. With AI being so pervasive all of a sudden, I think one of the areas where it seems like it would work, and I've spent a lot of time with AI music generation, and for the most part, it's crap. But there is one area, and that would be for background music on videos. Or, yeah. you know, wherever, on television shows or whatever. How, how do you feel about that? I mean, I think I agree with you. I think I think that's the very natural home for it, right? I mean, when you think about the stock music sector, the production music sector, it's quite costly. It's very cash-intensive up front, right? If you look at the big boys in that space, they're paying a few thousand dollars up front to buy out the lifetime copyright of every song that they ingest. So let, let's say, I mean, 
one of the major players has 35,000 stock music tracks in their catalog. If they want to grow to 65,000, they have to outlay $90 million. Yeah. And they're still, they're still only going to be at 65,000, right? If I was them, I'd be looking at an AI tool and saying, this is the search data. This is the usage data on the platform. This is the music that's getting used the most and searched the most. If it's getting used the most, people will stop using it eventually because it's become ubiquitous. So find make me as many different variations of that as possible. And here are all the new search terms we're noticing coming onto the platform. Let, let's train you on those genres and get and, and start filling up the catalog on those. So I think it's a much more scalable way for stock music and production music. I'm with you. I think a lot of it's crap, but I think a lot of it's good enough for some background usages. And, and you know, it does things like orchestral and uh, score a bit better than it does imitate chart, chart or mainstream music, right? Yeah. But not, yeah. Not, one of, not one of them is generating vocals or lyrics. So it, like, it's not going to generate a song. You're still going to need someone to write the lyrics and have an AI voice record them or whatever it might be. So uh, there are still limitations to it. Um, I, I, for me, that's the best application of it. Yeah, I'm putting together both a book and a course on AI for music production. So I've been deep into this for the last four months or so. I have to say, I try a lot of these platforms and I go, either it's so deep that the average person will not get into it if you're 20 years old and have a lot of time maybe, but the average musician will, will go, eh, too much work. Or the output that you get is just so substandard, either in the quality of the music or the quality of the output. You go, I could have just done this myself, you know, it would have been faster. So Yeah. And I, and I think, sort of, for my customer, because look, be, Lit also offers stock music, right? We offer stock music under subscription, and we offer mainstream music, chart music, uh, as sort of pay-as-you-go licensing, uh, because it's more expensive. But... Um, now, I think that if you offered people a an augmentation tool to an existing stock music track, because I want it to 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 crescendo earlier or end sooner or fit the length of my video without me having to become an audio editor, then I think that's the sort of evolution to full generative AI use from a front end tool perspective. Yeah, so I I think that's how people have started getting used to it. But I agree, it's not going to it's not going to fulfill the needs of my customer on day one, for sure. Yeah. So you're very much into the metaverse and music for the metaverse. So tell me about that and tell me what you think the evolution is so far. Right. Well, well, well let, so let me start at the beginning. There's a simple premise I think we, we and all your listeners should just get our heads around first, right? I always say this to my team. When, when a crack forms in a rock, water gets there on day one water will always find the crack right and whenever there's a new fissure in the digital landscape facing the music industry stock music gets there on day one the first thing they do is go to a stock music company because i just need something for now it can't be mute right yeah. and whenever stock music gets on day one i think it's our duty at linked to make sure mainstream music can get there later that afternoon. Because stock music is forever eating mainstream music's lunch. And I've got nothing against stock music. I think some brilliant composers do a lot of great work. They deserve payment and a living as much as everyone else. 
But the best productions in the world, Bobby, and you know this as well as I do, use both, right? Yeah. Stock music does something really well that mainstream music doesn't. I'm talking drones, suspense, thriller, comedy, action, fantasy, adventure. You don't get that from Ed Sheeran, right? So yeah, right, right. you need to create tension. You need to create a bed. You need all of those things, sound effects, hits, drones. But then you want to hit. You need to create a mood. You need to, you need to bring people along on an emotional journey, and that's where chart music comes in. So I discovered Decentraland, a metaverse platform. And what's what they call an open metaverse platform. So there are closed metaverse platforms like Fortnite and Roblox, where it's a game, really. And I can build in those platforms, but I can only build what they want me to build, like another island or another game, right? Whereas the open metaverse is saying, here's, here's an unbuilt city, go and build it. And it's asking individuals, purchase some land and build whatever you want on, on Broadway. And in that instance, if it's a, it's a virtual world, you're only ever going to build a meetup space. You're not building a restaurant. No one's eating. Yeah, yeah, right, right. No one's sleeping in hotels in the metaverse. So everywhere, everywhere you build is somewhere to meet up. And when you meet up with your friends in the physical world, there is background music playing, right? And 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 it's mainstream music. And we've solved that problem. And more than just solve the problem. We've proven the business case that the right use of mainstream music for the right sonic brand for a retail outlet or whatever it might be, a casino or a cinema complex, whatever, the right choice of music can enhance purchasing behavior. It will encourage dwell time and engagement, right? So if we're going to build virtual worlds that we expect the entire population or at least the, the most recent two generations of it to spend a lot of their time in, why would we expect them to settle for less? Anyway, so I meet Decentraland, and I get talking to them, some of the guys that, that, that built early in that space. And I said to them, I bet you music's a problem. And they said, oh, it's terrible. <laughs> and I said, I said, talk to me. So they toured me around this city in Decentraland, and I went to two places. I went to a jazz club playing stock music jazz, and I went to a techno club playing stock music techno. Now, listen. Lots of people like techno. I don't. But stock music techno makes me respect techno a lot more. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. So as soon as you go there, you go, well, who is going to say, I love techno? I want to go to that techno club that they built and then stay there when they're listening to that. And so I was like, this needs solving. This needs solving like user-generated content platforms needed solving. And whenever I see that, I just think, the music industry can't do it themselves, right? Labels don't know who publishes their music. The publishers don't know who else publishes the music. No one has got visibility on all the rights necessary. And even if they did, are they all going to come together and co-fund the technology needed to enable the opportunity? No. All innovation, technical innovation in the industry has come from a third party, Napster, iTunes, Spotify. And licked. Right? We built the software that enabled creators to start using music legally in their YouTube videos. And I said to my team, it's incumbent on us to build the technology to make this viable. First, you need a commercial model that works. And we, and we, we, we built it off of the one for the physical world. But Bobby, when you walk into a Ralph's and it's playing music in the States, 
they get their license from NASCAP and BMI. When I walk in to Sainsbury's in London, they're getting their license from the PRS. In okay. France, from SASM. In Germany, from Gamer. The music industry has warranted these rights at a local level. The global right necessary for legality in the metaverse has never been granted, never been warranted, never been drafted, right? Hey, I've got a shop that could simultaneously have lots of customers from 200 com- com- countries. Oh, well, yeah. you need a global license. I'll have one, please. It doesn't exist, right? So we, we now, now we're in a position where we've got lots of rights holders invested in the business, metaverse platforms on the cap table even. I'll come on to that. And we can say, look, we're going to build a commercial model. We will take on the costs of building the technology to enable it. But give me some founding catalog. And we had to build the tech. So how do you keep the music within virtual walls? And if the avatar has no ears, who are you playing it to, right? We built a music player that is still an MVP, right? There's, there's, a, there's a handful of venues using it in, in Decentraland now, in Vegas City specifically, where they select a playlist. And the play, the player they're selecting it from can read the blueprint of that virtual world. It reads the vectors and coordinates of the building you built, and it tracks the tokens of the avatars that are active and, and uh, engaging in that space. So if you, Bobby, own a venue and you select playlist A, it's playing in, in your venue now, right? If yeah. I... If I am walking down virtual Broadway and I see your venue and I walk through the door, my token crosses the coordinates. And that triggers the player to say, deliver playlist A to the device of token B. And now I'm in Guatemala somewhere hearing your playlist in your virtual world. And so the moment I leave and my token crosses those coordinates, like in the physical world, when I leave and shut the door behind me, it cuts off the music and I can no longer hear it. So we said, right, we solved it. Now give us a catalogue. And and we're at that early friction stage again where we've got lots of really good catalogue, but the biggest players in town are looking at it and going, well, I want the model in my favour. No, I want the model in my favour. And so we're just forging on, irrespective with the rights holders that we do have. Well, how do the rights associations deal with this then? What are their feelings? Because obviously they want to get their fingers in this. Yeah, well, they will. And we are happy to work with them. I mean, with the, with the best will in the world, Bobby, if we left it to the PROs, we'd still be sat here in 10 years saying yeah. we need... Uh, and my feeling is we forge ahead and bring people with us, not wait to get it right. The music industry is always waiting for perfection, and perfection is the enemy of the good, right? Yeah. Innovation, yeah. innovation is what makes change. So innovate, yeah. build the model, get the traction, get the data, and deliver it back to the industry and say, this is how you've got to make it work. We, we work with Epic Games. And in 2021, in the same funding round, both uh, Warner Music and Epic Games invested in, in my business. Um, we work with Epic because they have a, 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 you know, a very niche problem they wanted solving. And by the way, it does, none of what we do for Epic involves licensing music. They do all of that themselves. They're really good. They're really responsible. They pay fairly. They do everything legally. In fact, the music team there is phenomenal. But the problem they had was they've got these affiliates, gamers on Fortnite, who also have big live stream audiences. And when you are in the business or moving into the business of, of hosting concerts in your game, you're suddenly asking affiliates to share content full of music. And... Um, and that's a problem for them because they can't earn any money. 
and they learned that we built this software that we own. And essentially, we, we essentially provide a bespoke version of it to them to make sure their affiliates are always protected from copyright claims in and around a concert. And, and you know, I, I love how they work. But that was our first foray into the metaverse. It was into a closed metaverse. And then people start coming to us because they see press releases about, you know, what we're, what we're doing and who our partners are. And then we ended up with the, with the open metaverse solution with Decentraland. And we're talking to lots of other metaverse platforms about providing this for them as well. But it needs solving. If You probably read, like I did, I spent a lot of time ingesting uh, content about all of the activity the music industry was undertaking in the metaverse over the last two years. Name one activity that's scalable. None so far. There's not many snoops that can do 40 million in NFT drops in a week. And there's, and there's no more than 50 artists in the world that will perform in any one year in the metaverse, right? In Roblox. Yeah. Or in and, and you've got rights holders making investments. I think Warner has been particularly proactive in the metaverse, and they're thinking about it long term. But the real scalable solution is the everyday one that we walk into in every cafe in the world. That's already there. How can we get hundreds of millions of dollars into the hands of hundreds of thousands of artists and songwriters or millions of artists and songwriters. Well, let's enable the scalable solutions. Let's stop focusing on NFTs and utilities for concerts and, and all of that stuff. That needs to happen. It's big, it's sexy, but it's not scalable. The scalable solution is to do the unsexy thing there and just go, how about background music for every venue? Like You're not going to spend time in a shop or a bar or a uh, meet-up space in the metaverse if it sounds like crap. That's brilliant. That's, uh, that's one of those things that I'm glad you thought of it because it's something that it never came across my mind. Yeah. You know, what would happen with this? But uh, you're way ahead of the game on that. I haven't even seen anything about it, actually. I haven't seen any you know, much well, talk about this at all. So we announced that we had a partnership with Vega City in Decentraland. And then, yeah. then uh, in February, we announced, this is January or February, we announced the founding partners, the, the two big names that signed on, on day one for the metaverse with us, where Empire and Cobalt, right? No surprise. Empire is one of the most forward-thinking companies I've ever met. Ghazi is an incredible innovator um, and the fastest-growing hip-hop and black music label in the world. And Cobalt is always a tech-forward, innovative uh, business. They're already partners with us on the UGC side. I just knew that was, that was the um, – those were the doors that would be ajar for me to go and get my foot in, right? And say, listen, let's go and test this. So like, we can earn money. So as of February, Bobby, background music was generating royalties for commercial artists in the metaverse legally for the first time in history. And we did that. It's going to, it's going to scale, right? It's in a few venues now. We, we, we believe, and we, we, we project this in, in partnership with the platform, that there'll be over 100 venues using it within the first three months. Um, and, you know, each of them are paying a license fee, just like they would in the normal world, for access to the music. I have no doubt that that's going to work. What you're doing is going to work. It sounds like the right solution. That being said, let's just look at the metaverse and big picture here, big picture terms. How do you feel it's progressing? Because it was the hot thing last year and less so this year. That's a really good question. Uh, and, and, and I know what you've read to get there with that question, and, I, and I'm with you, right? We've all seen the same articles. Look, I think the metaverse is inevitable, right? Your, your listeners can't 
see it, but you and I are in the metaverse now, even if you, Zoom is about the most basic form of it, right? There are applications that, are, that provide more utility for people than, than you and I would imagine in the health sector, in sports, in all of those, right? So it's coming, whether we like it or not. And Gen Z and millennials will adopt it quicker than you or I will. But there's no doubt it's got teething problems. I think you know, you've got the closed metaverse platforms, Fortnite and Roblox, they're going gangbusters. No one's concerned about them, right? They, they, they are yeah. thriving and doing brilliant things. The open metaverse platforms do have engagement rate issues. But what they're learning is that they need to do more. And you know, if you look at, say, Sandbox, Sandbox has 400 brands or so that, are, that have activated or are active at any given time. Decentraland will get there, but Decentraland is going more through an, an events route. So Decentraland's numbers really spike, really peak every time they do an event. And there's not enough buildings there or uh, engagement there for it to sustain 24-7, 365. But if they find the right partners and enough partners to be putting on an event every week, that's how they'll get long-term adoption. That will attract other brands and other builders who will put up permanent venues and permanent stars, not pop-up stuff. And then people will start going back and, 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 you know, giving it more of a chance. I can't help to think that the latest Apple product is going to help there, even though it didn't focus on that at all in the demos and in the announcement. That's what made it attractive to me is what can I do to help me in my work? And yeah. it showed right away. And I thought, okay, yeah, now I get this. It makes a lot more sense to me. But I think that there'll be a natural outgrowth into yeah. meta yeah. worlds, you know, beyond that. So, I agree. you know, I'm looking forward to that. Do you know what uh, I thought? When I, when I saw the video, I saw the promo video for, what is it called? The Apple headset, whatever, the AR Apple headset. Yeah, so Vision Pro, I think. Apple Vision, Vision Pro. In the video, the guy is talking to someone on, on video. And that person, and you, you see inside his goggles, and he's got perfect picture, and he can enlarge the picture, and it's panoramic, and it's 4D and 4K, sorry. But I thought to myself, yeah, but the person you're talking to isn't wearing the goggles. If, if they were also wearing the goggles, you'd just be looking at someone wearing goggles. <laughs> like, that's, if you're both using it, then it's going to look really strange. But it does, it does look impressive. Unless you have AI that actually... I was just going to say, like, I think we spoke about innovation and the, the adoption of it from the music industry. And you know, you've probably encountered it like I have, Bobby, that there, there was still some really old school thinking in the music industry at the very highest level. And you start sometimes thinking to myself, you're, you know, some of you aren't fit for purpose, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, right. And, and what the music industry does, and I, I use this analogy with my team, is they are sort of slouched by the river, knocking a rock, getting the last blood of stone out of it, right? And, and, and last last bit of blood out of that stone, right? And you come over with a bunch of shiny pebbles and you go, look at all these pebbles. You could have all these pebbles. Why are you knocking around with that rock? And they go, leave me alone. I just worked out how to get blood out of this stone, right? Don't yeah, bring yeah. me stones. What I'm going to do is get as much blood as I can out of this stone and pretend yours don't exist. But the, but the sector, particularly in the UGC space that we're in, is just outpacing them. It's just outpacing their level of adoption. When I looked at this in 2015, 16, there were 1 million channels earning money from YouTube. 
sorry, 1 million channels with 1,000 subscribers or more on YouTube. And 1,000 subscribers is one of two criteria your channel has to meet for you to be eligible to one. There are now 6.5 million channels with over 1,000 subscribers. That doesn't mean they're all earning money, right, because they need to meet the other criteria, but they're, they're more than 50% there. And they make five videos a week on average, a month, sorry. So you're talking about almost half a billion licensing opportunities for the music industry a year. Largely, because I don't have 100 million songs on Lyft like I should have, largely it's, it's turned its nose up. And we're talking about the metaverse and we're talking about brands and platforms and we still haven't figured they still haven't figured out youtube right yeah yeah right right, right. The, the, no, let me tell you a stat that blew me away 90 percent of views on youtube 90 percent come from the top three percent of channels the top eight percent of channels on youtube are in that category i just spoke to you about the six and a half million right so if none of those channels can use music without losing their income and the top and 90% of all views are in the top 3%. The music industry is at scale, granted, monetizing the lowest form of content on YouTube, right? There's like 100 million videos that get 100 views. It's, it's my, you know, my grandma's birthday that I send to my mum or whatever it might be. Fine. Yeah. If you and YouTube want to share the 0. 0.0001 pennies that my video generated for you, have at it, right? But, you know, Mr. Beast started using us recently, and, 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 and he's the biggest YouTuber in the world. He averages 98 million views a video. He's happy to pay a license fee up front that's reasonable. And, and, and by the way, we run that fee past the rights holders in order to not lose the income of the video. But he's not going to give up all of that money for the use of 10 seconds of background music in a 20-minute video. He's not even going to share the revenue. It's not worth anyone's while to share revenue from background music, right? And yeah. um, you know, YouTube's built up, built out, brought out its own version, creator music. And I think it's about time they did it, and I commend them for doing it. But again, revenue shared by content creators, I think, you know, I think choreographers will love it and they should use it because choreographers only want the new releases and they're not earning anything at the moment. And that sector would grow if they could earn money and share in the money with the with the music industry. And I think things like lyric videos and art tracks, which are currently excluded from the offering, should be included. And and shorts, right? What is YouTube shorts if it's not a direct reaction to TikTok? And what was TikTok? 60-second vertical video with music. And YouTube should be saying, come over here, use music and share in the revenue and earn money. It's all the things you can't do on TikTok. Wow market, which is which you know I used to call short form. Now is actually long form. The five to fifteen minute video on YouTube, people don't want to really share revenue or or give it all up. So it's important that these problems, like eventually, people will earn money on TikTok and on Instagram Reels and on Meta and on Snap. And the moment you use money, you make money on those platforms. And none of them offer monetization like YouTube does yet. But the moment they do, the use of music in that video is going to prohibit you from earning any money. It's a commercial use. So we shouldn't be arguing about YouTube. We should be looking at the rest of them and saying, how do we future-proof ourselves? Last question, Paul. What's the best piece of business advice that maybe you learned along the way or somebody imparted to you? That's a really good question. I think 
I don't know if I can sing it down to one. There's been a couple actually that stuck with me. Perseverance is the single biggest indicator of success. I've had real struggles with LICT, right? There, there, there are many startups that get funding and they expect it to be at a certain point after a certain amount of time. I'm lucky that I've had smart industry-related money who knows just how long it can take to get deals done with the music industry, right? And so I consider the first four years as fallow, but it still needed to pay for staff and build the tech and build the platform, build out the proposition. But the platform was largely unpopulated with music. Perseverance got us there. Everyone said to me, you can't get past artist approvals. You'll never get the majors to pre-clear. You're not going to be able to clear all the publishing. The tech won't work. Distributors won't integrate your software and give you CMS access. I mean, I can't tell you the amount of notes, but perseverance and, and a sheer will to know that change will happen. You just have to decide if you're going to stay the course to be the one to make it happen. The other thing I would say, which I know you asked for one, but this has always stuck with me. This too shall pass. When, when, when my seed found, seed funder, he actually came and worked in the business after about a year, right? And he said to me, so what do I need to know? It's been 15 years since I've been in a startup because he grew his last business and sold it. And I said to him, you don't get to enjoy any big win for more than 24 hours before someone kicks you in the house. <laughs> and, and over time, with perseverance, 24 hours became 48, 48 became 72, and 72 became a week, right? But I got really low. I got so frustrated at the rate of adoption and the rate of change by the music industry. I felt these people weren't, weren't embracing the future, and I felt concerned for the industry, and it would really get me down. Uh, and someone said to me, you know, it's not the end of the world. This, this will pass, just like everything else. This too shall pass. And it's brilliant advice because even when we get excellent news, I think this too shall pass. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Yeah. yeah. And it just it's a way to keep everyone's feet on the ground and just go, we're going to get wins. We're going to get losses. We've just got to keep on going. You can find out more about Paul and Licht at Licht.co. That's Licht, L-I-C-K-D. L-I-C-K-D dot C-O. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Remember that you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There, you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. <laughs>